Hi, and welcome to The Rock Podcast. There's been a long-standing prophecy of doom over the dynasty of King Ahab, and in this study here in 2 Kings chapter 9, it's time for those prophecies to come to pass. Ahab's notorious wife, Jezebel, along with his son, who's king of Israel, and his grandson, who's king of Judah, will go to their ill-fated destinies. Let's join Pastor Ross now with a study entitled, Payday. Alrighty, good evening. Let's get started. Grab your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 9, where we're picking up verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Old Testament. And so tonight we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 9. The title of this message is Payday. Payday. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, we just ask, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to touch our hearts and open the eyes of our hearts to understand your word. Father, we recognize that this is alive and living. It is God-breathed, and you have something good for us tonight, something that will help us, inspire us, comfort us, or, or instruct us. We ask, Lord, for ears that can truly hear, eyes that can truly see, and a heart that understands. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Romans chapter 6 says, tells us a principle that's good in the New Testament and in the Old, the wages of sin is death. And tonight, here in 2 Kings chapter 9, it's payday. And three royal scoundrels uh, are going to receive, as I said, their comeuppance as it were. So uh, it's payday for the king of Israel, the current one, his name is Joram, and the king of Judah, uh, his name is Ahaziah, and actually the queen mother who's been kind of running the show, uh, Queen Jezebel, she's still alive, uh, but not for long, <laughs> not by the end of this chapter. Now, now here's how they're all related, all right? The family tree. All right, so, so a long list of kings of Israel in the north. The, the nation is now divided into two nations, uh, Israel in, in the north and Judah in the south. And there's a long line of kings before this and after. But here tonight in circle are the people who we are dealing with in chapter 9. All right, and these are, are, are the, the royals who are in trouble with the Lord. He's given them time to repent, but uh, they are going to pay uh, tonight dearly uh, for their rebellion. Now, here's how they're related. King Ahab and Jezebel uh, have a son who is now king of Israel. He has a sister named Athaliah. Now, uh, the king of Judah, the, this line here is normally separated because they're two different kingdoms. But Jehoshaphat, who is a good king, he had a bad idea. So with his boy Jehoram, he wanted to unite the kingdoms and he married his boy to their daughter. All right? 
So their son now is now king of Judah, Ahaziah. And this is who we're dealing with tonight. And Ahaziah is grandson here through the sister. All right? So if you're not totally confused by now, I will work harder at it and by the end of... Uh, but I think that kind of helps here. And, and this, is the, this is who we're dealing with. The guys who are in parentheses have already passed from the scene. So Ahab's dead, and we're left with him reigning, right? And Jehoshaphat's gone to be with the Lord. Jehoram is gone, and you don't know if he went which way, uh, but then, <laughs> then we have the, this guy. So these three are related to Ahab, and there's a prophecy of doom that's been hanging over their heads for a long time, and we're going to see that fulfilled tonight. So now you know uh, how they're related, but thank you for that. Uh, uh, they're, they're united by blood, but they're also united in evil character. Uh, they are the apple did not fall very far from uh, that tree, and so there's constant uh, uh, idolatry, and there's constant rebellion, and there's constant sinning, and uh, now they're also united in uh, a military operation. In that now the two kingdoms are fighting against Syria, so they've come together and they're fighting against Syria, which is kind of weird because. 2,800 years later, tonight, where there's fighting in the same region, in Syria, about basically the same issues about Israel and things of that nature. And, and so just really interesting. Um, now, last we heard, the king of Israel, so go ahead and put the family tree back up, sorry. <laughs> the king of Israel has been wounded they're both these two guys, all right? This is Uncle Joram, and this is his nephew, and they're joined together now, and they're fighting Syria. Last we heard, last chapter, chapter 8, uh, Uncle Joram got wounded, and he went back to the palace in a place called Jezreel, all right? So he's recuperating. And then uh, last we heard, King Ahaziah, nephew, comes to visit him to kind of cheer him up. And so what the reader knows is that there's doom hanging over Jezebel, who's in the palace at Jezreel, and Joram, who went back to Jezreel, and now this guy who came to comfort him. They're all three in one area, just like three flies landing in close proximity. It's easy to swap them all with one. That's kind of what's happening, and that's perhaps the worst illustration that I've ever used in my life. Uh, but you're going to read some worse things than that in this chapter. And so that's kind of what's going on here. Uh, there's been a prophecy of doom. Let me tell you how that prophecy of doom came about. The last straw for wicked King Ahab and Jezebel. The last straw was back in 1 Kings 21, about a couple decades ago. And let me tell you the story first. That's all right. Before we go to this. So take this away, please. Thank you. You have to say please. Uh, now let me tell you the story. Now you remember, First Kings twenty-one, Naboth's vineyard. All right. So wicked King Ahab wanted Naboth's uh, vineyard for a vegetable garden, 
And he went home to the palace and he asked Naboth very nicely for it. I'll pay you handsomely for it. And he refused. And he said, it's in the family. And by Jewish law, I can't do that. And so he's sulking like a a spoiled brat in the palace. And Jezebel says, what's wrong? Why won't you eat your supper? And he says, Naboth won't give me his vineyard. And she says, listen, honey, is this any way for a king to talk? I'll show you how to get that. So Jezebel goes and hires two thugs, and they accuse Naboth of uh, blaspheming, and they drag him out from a dinner with his two sons who would be heirs to that property, and they stone them to death right there, and they die. And she goes home and she says, oh, it's Christmas morning, dear. Uh, Merry Christmas. Go down and get your garden. Go down and take, take possession. So she, he goes down to the vineyard and God wants to uh, intervene through the prophet Elijah. So Elijah goes down and meets him and here's what goes on there. Now, this is what he finds. He finds his enemy, Elijah waiting for him under one of the arbors. And the prophet says to him, this is what the Lord says, in the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. I'm going to bring disaster on you. I'll consume your descendants. Those be the guys that we saw listed there. And cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel. And also concerning Jezebel, queen mother, The Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. That's where she is right now. She's in the house in the palace there. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. Well, thank you for that encouraging scripture. Now, you know, sin is serious, and the Lord has been dealing with these folks for a very long time. And so, uh, apparently, people had forgotten all about that prophecy. Uh, you know, people do. They, many people know about heaven and hell and John 3.16, but they just kind of uh, don't think about it much, and I think that's what was going on here. Uh, Ahab's family was huge. And very powerful. So people were thinking, they all knew this famous prophecy. They knew it was out there. But how would that ever happen with Ahab's powerful family? Verse 1. Let's find out how it's going to happen. Now, verse 1. The prophet Elisha summoned a man from the company of the prophets and said to him, Tuck your cloak into your belt. Take this flask of oil with you and go to Ramoth Gilead. When you get there, look for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. Go to him, get him away from his companions and take him into an inner room. Then take the flask and pour the oil on his head and declare, this is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. Uh, Then open the door and run. Don't delay. (laughs) That kind of information kind of stirs up things. And so he's concerned for this young seminary student. Now, if you're taking notes, number one, a task given. 
Now, actually, maybe more properly, we could label this a task completed. Because if you remember, back in 1 Kings 19, the Lord told Elijah, uh, gave him uh, a list of three things that needed to, to happen. And the last thing on the list was to anoint Jehu king instead of Joram. And so now 15 years later, this is coming to pass not through Elijah, but through Elijah's um, replacement, as it were, uh, Elisha. And so uh, it, that's amazing that this has been in the works for many years. Psalm 75, verse 6 says, God is in charge. He puts one down and he exalts another. And, you know, so it's time for Joram, who's convalescing there at Jezreel, and Ahab's family to be put down. And Jehu, the Lord had already chosen 10, 15 years before, already told the prophet, this guy's going to be out there and I want you to replace Joram with uh, Jehu. Uh, And Jehu's going to be raised up for the very reason of putting the other king down. So pretty amazing how God works in the world. Whoever is a leader right now, God is in control. God is working through them. Uh, We used to sing a song in first and second grade. He's got the whole world in his hands. That was back in the day when you could actually mention God in the schools and sing uh, Christian songs. He's got the whole world in his hand. He's got you and me, brother. He's got you and me, sister. Just think. There's no king on a throne. There's no president in office that God isn't working in and through. And uh, he is sovereign. God is sovereign. So Elisha gives the task to one of his seminary students. He's at, it's urgent, so the guy could probably run. He's a young man. And so he tells him to tuck up his robe. You know, you can't r- run very well with flowing robes. And he says, you go get Go fast there while King Joram uh, Joram is kind of bandaged up. Unbeknownst to him, the Lord is inspiring a coup against him. You see? And so this this young man goes up. Jehu is one of the high-ranking officers fighting in Syria. Ramoth Gilead, that's the line, the northern line between Israel and Syria, and they're fighting up there, and he's still up there, and so uh, this young man goes up. The task is pretty easy, get in, get out, and get ahead, like Heald College says. (laughs) Just a shout out to where I used to work for eight years. Uh, So the young unnamed prophet, um, he's sent out on an intense mission and uh, time was of the essence, and he's told, uh, take Jehu to side and uh, tell him uh, that he's the next king in the name of the Lord. And then he says, kid, as they said on Gunsmoke, then get the heck out of Dodge. And so he runs for his life after he's supposed to deliver that. Verse 4. So the young man, he goes, the prophet, goes to Ramoth Gilead, up where the battle is. When he arrives, he finds the army officers sitting together. I have a message for you, commander, he said. For which of us? asked Jehu. For you, commander, he replied. Jehu got up and went into the house. Then the prophet poured the oil on Jehu's head and declared, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. 
I anoint you king over the Lord's people, Israel. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master. The house means the dynasty, anybody related to him, any heir to the throne. And I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. That was her full-time job, was to kill God's prophets. Verse 8, the whole house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son, son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, son of Ahijah. So the Lord has done this before to dynasties who were evil, bent on evil. Verse 10, as for Jezebel... Dogs will devour her on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and no one will bury her. Then he opened the door and ran. <laughs> I, wouldn't you? I would open the door and run after saying something like that. So task giving, num- uh, number one, given. Number two, uh, now mission accomplished. The new guy is commissioned as king and given a very specific task if not daunting, for sure, uh, carry out uh, divine justice. So the young prophet arrives. Now, uh, the young man, I imagine, is winded and looking very urgent. He gets to the battle line there at Ramoth Gilead, uh, and he busts into a meeting. Commander Jehu, who's going to be the next king, is in a courtyard there, and I kind of picture him briefing high-ranking officials and soldiers. And uh, the prophet says, I've got a message for you, commander. And he says in verse 5, which one of us? Well, he just said for you, commander, but he's going to repeat it again. uh, For you, commander. (laughs) And so the prophet signals, I think, with his head like, you know, over there, I've got to talk to you about something. Uh, They need some privacy. So as soon as they go into the house, The door closes behind them. Out comes the anointing oil in a flask that uh, really will, and words that will change Jehu's life forever and the lives of other people in the story as well. Uh, So the prophet speaks in verse 6 and he says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people Israel. The first thing I take away from that is encouragement. Israel right now is in total rebellion. They're not worshiping the Lord. They're worshiping Baal. They're sacrificing to demons. They're doing terrible things. They're sexually immoral. Uh, They're backslidden, rebellious, and unfaithful. But the Lord says, they're my people. They're a mess, but they belong to me. That encourages me. Because you know why? I'm a mess. <laughs> but I belong to him. Yeah, amen? Well, you don't have to amen. What? <laughs> yeah, I was saying we. We. That was we, right? That's what you meant. Okay. Now I'm going to say amen. Amen. See how that felt? It's terrible. All right. The very... 7 through 10 are the very specific instructions to this wide-eyed guy now who's listening to this. In the name of the Lord, he's going to be king, right? Directions to wipe out Ahab's royal line. You know he has 70 sons. Yes, not just through Jezebel. 
Yeah, obviously. He has concubines. And what kings would do is they would have lots and lots of concubines so that they could build their kingdom and have lots and lots of sons. So he has 70. You're going to read about them in the next chapter uh, because they are his sons and God has made a promise. So uh, directions to wipe them out and almost word for word, the Lord is quoting himself from when Ahab and Jezebel murdered Naboth. There in verses 7 through 10 is very similar to verses in 1 Kings chapter 21. So he says four or five things. One, he says, you must destroy the king, the one you're serving. Wow. Uh, And his heirs. Number two, I'm paying back and avenging the blood of all my servants that Jezebel executed. Uh, Number three, I will leave no relative of theirs alive. And he says, just as I have done in the past to dynasties that are wicked. And number four, finally, speaking of Queen Jezebel, a most horrible death that I don't need to repeat awaits her and no honor in burial. Now, I kind of hear him, this young prophet, saying to this uh, commander who's going to be king, Jehu, I hear him saying, dude, you're the Lord's terminator, all right? I mean, uh, and then he opens the door and runs for his life. Uh, Verse 11, now when Jehu went out to his fellow officers, so he's, you know, he's been anointed. He's heard, in the name of the Lord, you're the next king. Here's what you need to do. When Jehu goes out to his fellow officers there in the courtyard, one of them asked him, is everything all right? Why did this madman come to you? Well, you know the man and the sort of things he says, Jehu replied. "Uh, That's not true, they said. Tell us. Jehu said, oh, here's what he told me. This is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. They hurried and took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. All right, let's pause there. Task given, uh, mission accomplished, and now there's a new king crowned, if you will. So verse 11, the officers who observed this strange, intense kind of scene with the kid running in, they know that they know him. We didn't know that. They really know him, as we find out. And the way he's dressed, they know he's from the seminary. And so they're curious. So Jehu comes out, and he's trying not to uh, call attention to the oil dripping off the head there. And they ask, uh, what was that all about, boss? Uh, What's that madman have to say? And then, well, they knew him. We found out, right? Uh, Because he says, well, you know the man. So they know who he is. He's a believer. He's a prophet. He speaks for God. You might as well call him a Christian. And what do they think of him? What did that madman, that crazy guy, have to say to you? Because you know, anybody who believes in God is a madman. He's crazy. You know know who's not crazy? People who just believe this is all one big accident. There was a big bang and boom. Here we all are. And that's sanity? I don't think so. I think it's kind of reversed there. Uh, So, uh, what was that all about? So, he says, what did that madman have to say? Yeah. I took offense at the term madman. And, uh, you know, fools for Christ, that's who we're called 
to be not foolish for Christ, but in the eyes of the world, we are fools. Vindication will come for you and for me. Nobody will think that you or me are, is crazy when he lights up the sky. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 says, Behold, look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. And that's what John writes. When that day happens, everybody's going to go, oh, when they think of you. That's why they were a little uptight and intense and always telling me about Jesus. Jesus that, Jesus this, all the time with their Bibles. When the sky lights up and the glory of the Lord is revealed and he's revealed from heaven with blazing fire, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8. With the angels, with the armies of heaven. Come on, people. They're, they're, they're going to say, okay, that explains a lot right there, <laughs> I think. And so verse 11, Jehu has kind of a momentary lapse. You know, they say, so what was that about? And he goes, well, you know how Christians are. You know what they say, you know, in the name of the Lord, you know, whatever. And, and why does he do that? Why does he do that? Because his buddies just said, what was that crazy man talking about God to you? And he goes, well, yeah. They're rolling their eyes and scoffing. They're his buddies. So he has a momentary, he doesn't want to come out and say, say what actually happened. So he's kind of has a hesitation. And he says, well, you know the kind of stuff that believers are always saying? Well, there's an awkward clunk. There's silence. And maybe he's averting his eyes. There's insincerity in his voice. And they look and they go, you're lying. What, what, what was it? What did he say? So they press him. And he says, he told me, the Lord has made me the next king. They look at each other. They have resentment. They don't like Joe Ram, who's in Jezreel with the wounded side. You know why? Because the queen mother is running the show. So there's resentment against him. They love this guy. They're happy. So what do they say? Maybe the guy's not so crazy after all. And so they take off their outer robes and they lay it down because that is a gesture that you, we are in the presence of royalty. We, we would rather you take the bottom of your foot and place it on our jacket so not to get your royal foot dirty from the ground. And that's exactly what was going on. We submit to you. We believe in you. Okay, let's get go in here and so they blow the trumpet and they put down their jackets and the conspiracy is going to start so unbeknownst to poor Joram who's convalescing with with queen mother making him soup and his nephew coming to visit and they're just sitting in the shade you know sipping some middle eastern coffee uh it's not good a new king in israel the army's on board the army that he left up north fighting the Syrians, he's back at the palace. But the army is with Jehu now, right? He doesn't know that, and they're headed his way. Verses 14 through 20. So Jehu conspired against Joram. Now Joram, now he, we're going to get the information that I've already told you. 
Uh, Joram and all Israel had been defending Ramoth Gilead against Haziel, king of Syria. That's Aram. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds that the Syrians had inflicted on him in the battle with Haziel, king of Syria. Well, we know that now. Jehu said, if this is the way you guys feel about me, blowing the trumpet and putting down your jackets and all of that, don't let anyone slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. In other words, we're going to go take care of this guy. But we can't let them know down at the palace. So verse 16, then he got into his chariot and rode to Jezreel because Joram was resting there and Ahaziah, the nephew, king of Judah, had gone down to see him. When the lookout standing on the tower in Jezreel saw Jehu's troops approaching, he called out, I see some troops coming. Get a horseman, Joram, the king ordered. Send him to meet them and ask, do you come in peace? Is everything cool? Is everything okay? Verse 18, the horseman rode off to meet Jehu and said, this is what the king says. Everything okay? You guys coming in peace? What do you have to do with peace? Jehu replied to the, to the guy who comes out. Fall in behind me, the lookout reported. Uh, the messenger has reached them, but he isn't coming back. So the king sent out a second horseman. When he came to them, he said, this is what the king says. Do you guys come in, in peace? Jehu replied, what do you have to do with peace? Fall in behind me and the other guy who just came. <laughs> the lookout responded, um, boss, he has reached them, but he isn't coming back either. <laughs> The driving, by the way, is like that of Jehu. He drives like a madman. Hmm. Wow. I don't know how many of you would be known by your driving uh, from afar, but this guy is. Okay, so new, new king crown number uh, four. Uh, now the old king must be killed since the new king has been um, kind of inaugurated. So off they go uh, to Jezreel. Now, the coup d'etat, a coup d'etat is just simply a political military takeover, right? Uh, so it gains momentum um, by the troops' positive response to anointing Jehu. And so there's uh, movement in that direction. And so no doubt Jehu's going to leave some forces up fighting Syria, and he's going to choose some special units to go with him to take down King Joram and any supporters down there in Jezreel. So they're off. I imagine they set off to the palace and, and the three royal scoundrels are there unsuspected, unsuspecting, uh, totally oblivious to what's coming down the road. So in verse 17, the watchman in the tower spots a cloud of dust and the troops from the uh, army uh, that are heading toward the palace and King Joram's alerted. By the watchman. And he says, uh, King, you know, troops are coming from the battle lines back here. So Joram says, Okay, send out a soldier, find out what's up. Verse 17. And then the soldiers meet, uh, the soldier rather comes out and meets Jehu and his men on the road. And the scout says, Hey, you guys, the king wants to know everything cool with you coming back. Well, you got some news from that? What? Uh, that kind of thing. And they say, uh, he, they say 
he says, anything troubling you? And the answer comes back, you guys should be, you should talk. Fall into line behind me, Jehu says. So verse 18, uh, I'm King Joram, the messenger got there, but he's not returning. We'll send another. So the second guy gallops out. Verse 19, everything cool, guys? This isn't a mutiny, is it? You're coming in peace, right? And then he says, what do you and peace have in common? In other words, you, you should be talking about peace, really? Seriously, King Joram is the most ruthless guy we know. So get in here or else. And so he falls behind the other guy who's in the back. I can just see him going... So he falls in behind him. Now finally, verse 20, the guy in the tower says, Boss, the number two scout has arrived. I can see it. But he's not coming back either. And by the way, the lead chariot is speeding furiously this way. And it's an awful lot like the way crazy Jehu drives. Well... Jehu is such an intense man that his personality can be easily seen in the way he drives a chariot. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) I know. I know. I'll tell you, my wife drives a mean chariot. (laughs) Who has more points on the record? (laughs) You! What? So what? I'm going to die tonight, all right? I'm trying to think of a funny thing to say and it's eluding me. (laughs) All right, verses 21 through 29. Okay, so he's saying, look, and here they come. The two guys have joined them. Well, what's up? So he says, verse 21, hitch up my chariot, Joram, the wounded king says. And when it's hitched up, Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, nephew, king of Judah, ride out, each in his own chariot, to meet Jehu. I don't think that was smart. Uh, They met him at the plot. Oh, you got to underline this. They met him at the plot of ground that had belonged to Naboth the Jezreelite. Oh, what a coincidence. Yikes. Verse 22, how does God do that? Right on the property. 22. When Joram saw Jehu, (laughs) sounds funny, uh, he asked, have you come in peace, Jehu? How can there be peace, Jehu replied, as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound? Oh, that can't be good. (laughs) Verse 23, Joram turned about and fled, calling out to nephew Ahaziah, king of Judah, treachery, Ahaziah. Verse 24, then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. The arrow pierced his heart and he slumped down in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his chariot officer, pick him up and throw him on the field that belonged to Naboth, the Jezreelite. Remember how you and I were riding together in chariots behind Ahab. This is 10 years ago. When he was alive, his father, when the Lord made the prophecy about him, and here's the prophecy, 
Yesterday I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord. And I will surely make you pay for it on this plot of ground, declares the Lord. Oh, he remembered from 10 years earlier, there was some crazy madman who made a prophecy on this very ground. You'll pay. Wow. Now then, pick him up and throw him on that plot in accordance with the word of the Lord. Verse 27. When Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw what had happened, now the nephew, who is grandson to Ahab and Jezebel, he fled up the road to Beth Hagan. Jehu chased him. He has, yeah, Jehu chased him, shouting, Kill him too. They wounded him in his chariot on the way up to Gur, near that place. Uh, but he escaped to Megiddo and died there. His servants took him by chariot to Jerusalem and buried him with his fathers in his tomb in the city of David. Now, that grandson is related by blood to King David through his father, not through his mother. Through his mother, he's related to Ahab. You, you follow that? It's not that important. But verse uh, number five, then, if for your notes. I would call that bullseye or double bullseye. Not only does God get his man, but he gets him at the precise location promised 10 years earlier. Jezebel and Ahab murdered Naboth and his sons right there. And now their sons, their son was executed at that exact spot. As prophesied. Now, just so you all know, Joram, who just got executed there as the son of Ahab, on the spot where Ahab and his mother, his wife, killed Naboth and his sons, Joram is a murderer. He didn't murder Naboth, but he has murdered others. And let me show you a scripture Ezekiel 18, verse 22. I hope I have that. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. Common sense. All this stuff about generational curses, the only thing that is true about a generational curse is when the next generation repeats the folly of the first and incurs the same consequences from God. God just doesn't say, oh, because Ahab and Jezebel were wicked, I'm going to punish all the wicked children just for the sake of Ahab. Sometimes it sounds like that, but these guys are sinners. They're doing equally... uh, as wicked things as their parents, if not worse. So just so you know that, I think sometimes people um, get that whole generational curse thing and don't realize that it's just because they're imitating the behavior that they saw in their parents and grandparents kind of thing. So uh, Joe Ram is going to find out for himself now what's up with everybody coming this way. So in verse 21, he goes out to meet the procession of the troops, right? So he says, hey, Jehu, Commander Jehu, he's his right-hand guy. What are you doing? Do you come in peace? And he says, in, in essence, now, 
I mean, I know this sounds disrespectful, but it's true what he says. He, he says, do you come in peace? And he goes, peace? Your mama. And that's, that's kind of what he says. He says, how can there be peace when your mama is Jezebel? Now, she has, she has killed hundreds and hundreds of prophets. Um, she employed about a thousand sorcerers and false prophets and prophetesses. Uh, and she fed them at her table. She's personally supported 1,000 of them. She's the driving force behind Israel as a nation falling into worship of Baal. She is responsible for that. So, um, she is probably one of the worst villainesses uh, in, in the Bible, for sure. So, uh, he, he, he says, it's your mother and you. So Jehu's harsh response told him, uh-oh, and he turns to run. But he's not wearing his armor. Why? Because he was wounded. So he's convalescing. He doesn't have his armor on. And that arrow, you know, Jehu is a good marksman, but he has the anointing of the Holy Spirit when he pulls back. And that arrow goes straight through that wicked man's heart like a heat-seeking missile. Now, interesting to me, verse 25 and 26, uh, Jehu and his officers know and remember the prophecy from a decade earlier. uh, And I think they have a faith-building moment themselves. Now, verse 23, before Joram dies, he alerts his nephew, hey, man, this isn't cool. Uh, Treason's happening here. Run for your life. Uh, But Jehu's Jehu's on a roll, and Ahaziah's no match uh, for him. His body is going to be buried with the kings of Judah, I think, out of respect that he is blood relative to King David. Now, let's finish up. What about Jezebel? Well, okay. Then Jehu went to Jezreel. Okay, so they were halfway there or so. When Jezebel heard about it, she painted her eyes, arranged her hair, and looked out of a window. As Jehu entered the gate, she asked, Have you come in peace, Zimri, you murderer of your master? He looked up at the window and called out, Who's on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him. Throw her down, Jehu said. So they threw her down, and some of her blood spattered the wall and the horses as they trampled her underfoot. Sorry. Verse 34, Jehu went in and ate and drank. Take care of that cursed woman, he said, and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. She was the king of Sidon's daughter, a princess, right? Sidon is modern-day Lebanon. Verse 35, we're almost done. But when they went out to bury her, they found nothing except her skull, her feet, and her hands. Verse 36, They went back and told Jehu, who said, This is the word of the Lord that he spoke through his servant Elijah the Tishbite. On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs will devour Jezebel's flesh. Jezebel's body will be like refuse on the ground in the plot at Jezreel, so that no one will be able to say, This is Jezebel. Verse 37. 
All right, so last point, point number six, Jezebel falls apart. But at least she had her makeup on. You got to die, ladies, right? Okay. Now, first of all, God doesn't soft sell the, the, the death of the wicked or the destiny of evildoers. The Bible's pretty clear about that. Jesus talks about hell in the most graphic of terms. Uh, so uh, this really is not just Old Testament. This is why I don't like the Old Testament. Well, you know what? When you hear Jesus talking, you hear revelation about the end of the world. Yeah, it's pretty graphic as well. So now, even though the Holy Spirit's already told us on several occasions about Jezebel's destiny, uh, it's still shocking to to read about. So. Her horrendous doom was not really a secret. People knew, and more importantly, she knew. They all knew. And God gave her lots of time, as he gives lots of time to all sinners, because it's not his heart to see the wicked die in their sins. Uh, Ezekiel 33, verse 11. As surely as I live, says the Lord, I, I take no delight in the death of the wicked but rather that they would turn from their wicked ways and live. And then he goes on, turn, turn, turn. Come to me and have life. Um, So uh, Proverbs 29, verse 1, whoever remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. And that's what's happening. Without remedy, indeed, you can't even tell who she was, but that's what God said would happen to her. All the king's horses and all the king's men could it put Jezebel back together again? I don't know how else to deal with this, except a little humor. Amen? Amen. All right. So the news gets back. To, check this out. Your text says the news of her son and her grandson dying and that the army is with Jehu gets back to her and she puts on her makeup, and fixes her hair. Instead of seeking his face, she's gazing at her own face in the mirror. He puts on her makeup, does her hair. Uh, One writer said this, this little detail is given to underscore the pathetic condition of Jezebel's spiritual heart. It's always been about her, and it will be to her dying breath. So she's got to act, look like a queen when he comes in. She's going to try to manipulate and th- through what she says. So he comes to the gate in verse 31, and she's looking out the window in all her queenly splendor, apparently, and calls him Zimri. Now, I need the chart of the kings, the list of the kings. He sa- she says, oh, hello, Zimri. Oh, there's Zimri. Now, Zimri was king for a week. Do you remember that? The, the guy who lived for a week? Well, here's what happened. He killed this king because he wanted the job. So he assassinated the guy before him and he got to be king for seven days. This is Ahab's father who killed him. So Ahab's father, so she's saying, just like Zimri, who was a traitor, 
who killed the guy before him. He only lasted seven days, and then Ahab, my husband's father, killed him. Just like somebody from my family is going to kill you in seven days. Sorry. (laughs) I just thought that if anyone's these snaps, it's Jezebel. Amen? All right, I'm slowly dying up here. (laughs) A A slow, painful death. That's all right. The Lord could come tonight. All right. So that's, that's what she's doing there. She's saying, you know, you're a traitor. Usurpers don't last long around here. Uh, your plot will be short-lived. Uh, and uh, traitors who kill their masters don't last. Uh, our dynasty will outlive your futile attempt. So Jehu's up for this. Thank you for the chart. He looks up in the window and he says, Will somebody please throw her down? <clears throat> And there are a few volunteers. And so they help her out the window. (laughs) And down she comes. Now, verse 33, the new king in true conquering fashion rides over her body and to the royal dining hall to have supper as the new king. And in verse 34, after he's eaten as a new king, at the royal table, he says, on second thought, you know, she's a princess. Go bury that cursed woman in a right way. And it's too late. They can't recognize her. Uh, When he gets the news, uh, the full weight of Elijah's awful prophecy uh, is recognized there in 1 Kings 21. Now, 66 books in the Bible. Number one, femme fatale, the most evil woman ever recorded in history, really, in the Bible. Um, Let me close by drawing your attention to something that will pull this all together for you. Here's a picture of the Jezreel Valley. The other name for the Jezreel Valley is the Valley of Megiddo where we get the word Armageddon. Now, this is a very famous valley. And God has allowed, through the history of the Bible, 200 ferocious battles to be fought there. And he's saying something about this valley. This is the valley where vengeance of the Lord against evildoers like Ahab and Jezebel Ahab and Jezebel, somewhere in here, they are judged by God there. Now, two famous battles there, Judges 4, Barak against Sisera, the Canaanite kings who came against Israel, uh, and God delivered them. Judges chapter 6, Gideon, and the 300,000 Midianites, Amalekites, and the eastern peoples who came to destroy Israel. And through 300 men with Gideon, Judges chapter 6, right in here, took place. You know what this has always been? A mini picture of Armageddon with the spirit of God judging evil, where good triumphs, where God's people are saved and vengeance is brought down in the most graphic and ugly and bloodiest of terms. Q. 
Can you get more graphic and more disgusting than what we read over and over and over again? It would be nice if just one time you say the dogs are going to eat her, but then the dogs are going to eat her, the dogs are going to eat her, and then the dogs ate her. And here's what it looked like afterwards. Why? Because this is a picture of what's coming. Revelation chapter 16, verse 16. It's called Armageddon from the Hebrew Har Megiddo, hill of Megiddo. It's right here. It's going to happen here where is prophesied the kings of the earth, the armies of the last times, the very last battle of all the Ahabs and all the Jezebels represented in the last battle who shake their fists against the Lord and he appears and listen to, here I have a little bit of the gist of it in Revelation. And I saw an angel who cried in a loud voice to all the birds. You're going to see this now. You're going to see what God was doing in the, in the graphic depiction of the demise of the wicked Ahab and Jezebel. I saw an angel who cried in a loud voice to all the birds, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, mighty men, and of horses and their riders. The rest of them were killed with a sword that came out of the mouth of the rider and the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their dead bodies. This is New Testament. This is coming. The church has been taken away. The wrath of God falls. The peace treaty with Israel is signed. You have seven years. The last battle right here. And right before this verse, it says, and then I saw heaven open, and I saw the... I saw the rider of the white horse with many crowns on his head and a, and a, and a label on his robe, written on his robe, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, eyes blazing fire. And he comes to make war against those evil, rebellious people in that valley. And look, graphic terms, the consequences of shaking your fist at God and living your own way. This is why you have these stories in the Old Testament. They're painting a picture of what's to come. And what's to come, I'm telling you what, Jezebel and this whole story, it might as well be a chapter out of Snow White and the Seven Doors for what's coming. And that is nothing. Read Revelation. The whole entire earth is destroyed in 21 judgments. Seven trumpets, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, all poured out on the earth. The earth dies. There's no life left. Jesus said in Matthew 24, if, we didn't, if God didn't shorten the days, nobody would be alive. No, no tribulation like it before or after. It's the end. And that's what this picture tonight is. And anything that happens in the Old Testament is looking forward to the evil that God will come and judge but forever. Let's end on a happy note. Last scripture. <laughs> and the spirit and the bride say, come and let him who hears come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. And then mixed in that whole scene is this bejeweled city coming out of heaven with holiness and, and, and a river of life and beautiful music and streets of gold and 
all for free. This is God's heart. This is where Jezebel could have spent eternity. You could have read this. When news came to Jezreel and Jezebel heard it, she fell prostrate on the floor. She cried out to God, Dear God, I have lived a terrible life. My husband and I have done terrible things. I see, I deserve death. I see what you're doing. Have mercy on me, God. She would be with us. God gave her so many opportunities as he does everybody because he wants them to come to know him, to have repentance and and to find life. Uh, Let me give you uh, three one-liners that I took away from reflecting on the doom of the wicked. There are three good things. One, it helps me abstain from sin. When I reflect on people like Ahab and Jezebel, sin seems very... uh, uh, not very attractive. The fear of the Lord helps me to live right for him. Number two, it assures me that God is just and that nobody will ever get away with anything. I mean, our sins are covered in Christ, but this is a just universe that God made and men will give an answer for every idle word. And we see that when God just judges and obliterates evil. He would prefer them to come to him, but... You know, it assures me, you know, I can trust God. There's justice. And lastly, God makes me appreciate my salvation more and more when I reflect on the doom of the wicked. It makes me more grateful to Jesus. It it inspires me to, to live for him and to do the right thing daily because I see the end. I see the fruit. I see the wages of sin. And there's always a payday. There's a payday for evil and there's a payday for righteousness. And I want the latter. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this pretty sobering chapter. Lord, we don't take delight in the death of the wicked either. We want to learn from it. Lord, we, we want to let this motivate us to reach out in evangelism, uh, to fan the flame in our own heart. We don't want anybody to uh, have to experience the wrath of God, especially when they don't have to, because you um, made a way. So we thank you. We commit ourselves to your care in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.